0: The most tragic uh, condition that a human being can be in is to be separated from God. And I think if we consider what other horrors we can imagine, crippling disease or prison or torture or whatever, nothing compares with the horror of hearing Jesus say on the last day, depart from me, I, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness, which he says he will say to many people. In fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 22 and 23 that those very words will be said to many people that are professing to be disciples of his, depart from me. So the last awful words many will hear from the Savior will be those that he didn't know them. In Romans chapter 8, we've been looking for a few weeks now at words of incredible contrast to that, unspeakable comfort and joy and security. The chapter begins, Romans 8, with no condemnation and ends with nothing can separate us from the love of God. Anything in between no condemnation and no separation simply bolsters and supports those two great realities. But these words of comfort from beginning to end are conditioned on one thing, and that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 says no condemnation, but it's a restrictive sentence, not a universal sentence. The words are, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8 concludes with nothing, quote, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Every divine blessing that can come to man and save him from sin and guilt comes through Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because it is he and he alone who solved our problem, who defeated our enemies and won the victory. And people can say what they want about finding value in all faiths and all religions and morals and enlightenment and all that stuff, but the problem is that stuff doesn't do me any good. See, I'm a sinner. Justly condemned by the law of righteousness, even condemned by my own conscience. So, What good is religion going to do for me? That's the big question. I don't need more moral instruction. I can't live the ones I've got now. And I don't need enlightenment because turning on the light just shows me what a rat I am and uh, shows me all the filthy laundry I've got in my life. So it's, it's more comfortable actually hiding in the dark than being enlightened. So what I need is a Savior to solve my sin problem. And if you're honest with yourself, you would know that you need one too. And there's only one Savior from sin. So people can say whatever they want, but if there's only one way, then there's only one way. And if we all all went on a walk and we needed to cross a treacherous and violently turbulent river, obviously that walk is not local. (laughs) We're walking somewhere far away, which has a violent turbulent river. And there's only one bridge to take. Then guess what? there's only one bridge to take. That's just the way things are. Well, maybe I can try to wade across. Well, try it. But if you die trying while in sight of the only safe bridge that there is in existence, you're pretty foolish. I I hope you can see the little analogy there. There's a remarkable reality in the universe and that is that we, you and I, human beings, are really, really tiny and it's not our universe. We didn't make it. We don't control very much of it. I have a hard time controlling the weeds. And what we do control, we seem to bungle. And we are not only tiny in size, but we don't really live very long, it seems. So brief specs is the way you could describe humanity. Brief specks in a vast universe. Now, God is in control of the universe. I mean, He designed it, and He owns it, and it belongs to Him. And when man sinned, He even cursed it so that we would be compelled to seek a way back to Him so we wouldn't be satisfied by it without Him. Now, amazingly, though we are brief specks, He sees us as important because He made us, as the Bible says, in His image. That is, we are persons with intellect and will and creativity and spirituality and morality and all of that stuff. And the universe is vast, but the universe is not personal. We are. And though life seems short, this personal spiritual part of us is really quite durable. It's actually eternal. So after this body dies under God's curse, the soul goes on. Where it goes is the big question, right? Right? That's the question to be answered. Two possibilities are revealed to us in Scripture for where we go. One is we go to be with God, and the other is we go to be without Him, apart from Him. So the Christian message in the meaning of Christmas is that God provided us a way to be with Him. He built a bridge for sinners to cross. And since it's his universe, it doesn't do much good to whine or complain about the bridge he has given us in his infinite wisdom, as though there's something wrong with it, because it works. Jesus Christ is God's bridge. It's his chosen way. And as I said, it's the only bridge because he's the only victor. We have enemies that have to be defeated in order to get back to God, obstacles to overcome. And human beings have proven to be quite powerless against these obstacles. There's a list of them at the end of Romans chapter 8. Verses 38 and verse 39. And what I'd like to do is look at these obstacles in the light of Christ who overcame them all. And I think you'll see that he has to be the only way because who else defeated these things? Well, the context is our victory in Christ here in Romans chapter 8. That's Paul's theme. In verse 31, he says plainly, if God is for us, Who is against us? And in verse 35 he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now that's the question. And he lists a good many things that people, and I mean people of faith, might mistakenly believe to be a sign of God's disfavor. He mentions tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. And these are all human tragedies and disasters. Do they mean we're cut off from God's love? He says, no, not at all. Verse 37, he says, And all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So those things, all of them, painful as they may be, are very short-lived. And none of them can alter or affect what Christ has done for us, what he has won for us, which is everlasting joy in the presence of God. None of them can change how God regards us as beloved children. So let's look at each of these obstacles and see how Christ has defeated them. Most of them come in pairs, but not all of them. The pairing is sort of a poetic device. It gives a kind of an all-inclusive quality to what Paul is describing uh, in verse 38 and 39. The first two are really an obvious pair. Verse 38, he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, death and life, now, you can't be separated from the love of Christ by death, in life or in death. Now, death has its obvious terrors, right? I mean, it's, it is and always has been the great unknown, as people say. Life can have its own difficulties as well, and some people are as afraid of living as they are of dying. But Christ has mastered both. He lived the life we're supposed to live, and he died the death that we deserve. And of course, that's the gospel right there. That Christ conquered death for us, embraced the curse, and met the demands of God's holy law. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. To redeem something is to purchase its freedom. That's what that word means in Greek. You pay a price and you buy something, you redeem it, right? Just like redeeming something you hawk pay the redemption price and you redeem it, you free it. He redeemed us, purchased us from the condemnation of the law, paid all that we owe. So in truth, death is not to be feared. In fact, Paul even longed for it at times. Philippians 1.21, he says, for me, for, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He, he actually said, you know, it'd be pretty nice to go and be with him. He says, I've got to stay here and work in the church, but it would be a nice thing to go. To die is gain for the Christian. Well, what about life? You know, Christ solved the problem of living, too. He conquered life by walking through it without sin. Always trusting the Father and never giving in to the tyranny of the now or giving in to the expectations of others or the fear of not being on the inside group or being cool. Can you imagine Jesus worrying about being cool? Or Whatever. He showed us that we are aliens and strangers here, which the Bible says, and we should be happy about that. So we're not bound to this life as though this is all there is. And you know what that means? You have an incredible freedom in this world. Not to be bound to the culture or everybody else's opinions or style or any of that stuff. You're free because you're an alien and a stranger here. You're just passing through. There is incredible freedom there for the Christian. Oh, I'm not popular. I'm only loved by the God of the universe. That's all. Oh, Isn't that enough? Well, my life didn't turn out the way I planned. Well, maybe it's turning out the way he planned. So learn from it. Rest in it. Now is just a preparation for then, which is forever. And now is so short. It's just prep time for the big, the big day. Eternal life. So many people who have it all now and who want it all now and seek it all now will have absolutely nothing in the end. So be content in the love of God. Life and death, he conquered them both, showed us how to handle them both. The second pair in Romans 8.38, it says angels and principalities. The Jews commonly spoke of angelic authorities as principalities. Angels have rulers and princes and ranks and hierarchies. There's all kinds of structure in the angelic realm. Now, of course, in the New Testament, fallen angels are given these designations as well, principalities and powers. In fact, if you look at Colossians for a second, you can keep your finger here in Romans and flip over just a few books there. The little book of Colossians, it's right after Philippians. There's a very interesting parallel. Paul is describing the victory Christ won on the cross in chapter 2. And he takes the language as though it were a sort of a Roman triumph, like Caesar, Christ the Conqueror, ahead of his troops, and the princes all behind him in his train. If you've ever seen some film that has a Roman triumph in it, like Polvatus or something, they come marching through and the, the general's in the front and behind him are his soldiers and in the back end they have all the prisoners that they come dragging in, you know, and it's a way to glorify their empire and stuff. Well, that language, that kind of descriptive term is sort of what's used by Paul here. Verse 13, it says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. There's your enemy. What is your enemy? Decrees, laws that you've broken and a list of your indebtedness to the law of God because you violated so much of it. That's your enemy. What did he do with it? He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So God triumphed over these authorities, rulers and authorities, in Christ. Now, these are demonic powers. How does he defeat them? By reconciling to God beings, us, that they had corrupted and ruined by forgiving them and by providing a way of salvation for them through his shed blood. You know, Satan was so desirous to get Jesus on the cross. It even says that Satan actually entered into Judas Iscariot at the Last Supper so that the betrayal thing would happen in a truly satanic way I mean it was going to go all the way nothing's going to stop him once Satan's entered into his heart and yet it was at the cross that Satan was destroyed and overthrown and Christ's victory was won and Satan actually it's kind of fun to imagine him going "Ah!" when he realized that his own plan to kill the Messiah is what resulted in the salvation of so many 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 people that would be taken out of the satanic realm by Christ can demonic powers separate you from the love of God? No. That's what he's saying in Romans 8. They cannot. They do his bidding. Didn't you see them fawning and begging like whipped puppies when Jesus was walking the earth? Every time they came across some demonic person, they'd got like grovel on the floor. and, Oh, God, are you going to send us away before the time? Oh. You know, they're just whipped dogs. And in his death, they lost their last power over us, which is the power of accusation. You know, Satan is called in the Bible the accuser of the brethren. Demons tempt people, and when they fall, then they accuse us. When we fall, they accuse us before God. Just look what he did! They say. Or, is she one of yours? Remember in Job chapter 1, how Satan accused Job? in the first chapter of that book, before the throne of God. Zechariah 3.1, there's a vision of Joshua the high priest, and it says he's standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan's standing at his right hand to accuse him. And then the book of Revelation, in chapter 12, verse 10, it describes Satan as the accuser of the brethren, who accuses them before God day and night. That's what he does with his time someone is constantly bringing up your sins before God. You might think they're overlooked or hidden or forgotten, but someone is taking your sins and making them the object of discussion in heaven. Mine too. That's a rather frightening prospect. The accuser won't let your sins be forgotten. I don't know how that makes you feel. It's kind of disturbing to me. But the good news is, we shouldn't fear that. I might be disappointed that my sins are being battered around in heaven before the throne of God. But, will those accusations separate you from the love of Christ? No. That's what Paul's saying. Colossians 2.14 says, Whatever decrees were against us, whatever debt we owe to divine justice, was nailed to the cross with Jesus. So Satan can accuse us all we want. And Jesus, our advocate... Our lawyer, if you will, in heaven, speaking on our behalf, interceding for us, as Romans 8 says. He says, that sin is covered. We're not bringing that one up anymore. That's covered. Say what you will, Satan. He's ours. Debt paid in full. There was no ground for accusation because sentence has been served and Christ served it. So we're not to fear demonic powers. We need to respect their skill at corruption and avoid entanglements with their darkness, but we need not fear them. The Spirit of God dwells in us, Romans 8.11 says, and 1 John 4.4 4 assures us that greater rut is he who is in you than he who is in the world, right? Next on the list in Romans 8, Paul mentions things present and things to come. Now, these terms, I think, are very intentionally broad. You can fill in the blanks with your own current concerns and your fears for the future. What's bugging you about today and what do you fear for tomorrow, present and the future? Can any of those things separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? No. Nothing. Nothing current and nothing coming down the path can separate you from God's love. Whatever happens, He will keep you. He will hold on to you. Then Paul says powers. That's a word that's often attached to angels and principalities as well. Many people around the world live in fear of dark powers, spirits and charms and shamans and all that pagan stuff. And anything that's real in all that pagan stuff is satanic, it's demonic. And again, whatever is believed to be power holds no power over those who belong to Christ. And none of those powers can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. None of them. Nothing to fear there. So Paul is really working to cover all the bases. He's eliminating all that we might consider to work against us. And having covered the extremes of human existence, death and life, and having encompassed all that we experience in time, the current and the future, then he moves on to the endless proportions of space, Verse 39, he talks about height and depth. And I don't want to get real speculative this morning about spiritual realities existing in parallel dimensions and all that stuff that people would like to think about. Like, Is heaven up or is it in another dimensional realm or all that kind of stuff? Who knows? But um, I think what he wants you to get from this is very much language that would be similar to that in the Old Testament. That you can go to heaven's farthest reaches infinitely distant or you can go into the lower depths of Hades but you cannot escape by distance God's love for you. The universe is so vast and you can go to the other end of it but you know what? He's there and his love doesn't change. You cannot escape by distance God's love. And just in case you thought of something Paul has missed he concludes verse 39 with this or any other created thing. There's nothing in the universe any created thing that can separate you from the love of God if you belong to Christ. That is such good news. It's a nice touch, any other created thing. All those things, time, space, life, death, angels, powers, it's all created stuff. Limited. Limited. It's all dependent on God and all of it has to bow to God. Nothing is running loose out there, you know. There aren't things that are out of his control. Nothing is acting contrary to God's sovereign will. If you notice in Job chapter 1 when Satan goes to accuse and Satan says, take away this and take away that and he'll deny you, he has to ask God for permission to, to even harm Job in any way, shape or form. If God says, no, you can't do that, then he can't do it. Satan isn't an independent power. He wants to be, but he still has to beg favors from the throne to even to harm any human beings on earth and to do his thing. And he's allowed to because there's a whole curse thing going on down here as a result of human sin that God is allowing. And he's allowing Satan to have a certain amount of room to do his wicked thing. But it's all under God's sovereign control, all of it. And if you belong to Christ, guess what? None of it can separate you from Him. None of it. Nothing He can do. God Himself is the only uncreated thing. And if you're in Christ, He loves you and you belong to Him. And He actually delights to see you safely home with Him. That's where He's bringing the whole process of your life. So, we've scanned the horizon for enemies, seen and unseen, new and old, near and far, big and small. And no enemy can stand up to our Lord. It is God who foreknew you. Back there in verse 29. God who predestined you. God who called you. God who justifies you and who will glorify you. Just be patient. And fear no enemy. The only legitimate fear is to be found outside of Christ. Christ. That's the only legitimate fear. And a true Christian should not have that fear either because there's no way God is going to let you go if you've come to Him. So we come back to the beginning. All this blessing and security and love are found in Christ, and Christ alone. Now, other religions have their stuff and, and whatever there is about that, religious leaders might be noble, they might be intelligent, they might be kind, they might be insightful and all that. They just don't solve Any of these problems. That's the only problem with them. They're useless. So the Dalai Lama might be a great guy, but he's useless. As far as these issues go, they've all died. He will die, just like us, and stay dead. So how can I rely on them to defeat death? They can't govern the future. They're not more powerful than angels or demons. They have no infinite power. And frankly, all of them have succumbed to the cursed creation. They sinned, they died, they're gone. All of them. You can name any top religious leader ever in history or currently. And that's true of all of them. Except one person. The God-man. Jesus was victorious because he was God the Son as well as the Son of Man. And he can handle all of this stuff. None of it's too big for him. None of it. He governs history. Demons cringe before him. Nothing is hidden from him. And nothing is out of his control. So in him, we are secure in God's saving love. And you are invited, if you're not confident of that for yourself, you are invited to participate and have it for yourself. He holds nobody back. Jesus said, "Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." Rest from fear, rest from condemnation, rest from not knowing where you will spend forever, rest from all the obstacles that stand between you and God your own sin being the most serious of those. The path is really pretty simple. And faith is just the tool. Faith is an instrument. Faith is a means to receive him. And faith simply means acknowledging with your heart who he really is and giving yourself over to him. Who is Jesus Christ? He is called the Lord Jesus Christ. So faith means... I not only believe that he is the Lord, but he's going to be my Lord. Jesus is called the Savior of the world. Faith says, I'm not only going to acknowledge that he is the Savior of the world, I want him to be my Savior for my sin. Do those, that simple thing, put faith in him for who he is in those two ways, as Lord and Savior, and he will take you to himself as His very own. And then all of these promises will be true for you. Verse 31, If God is for you, who will be against you? Verse 35, Who will separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? No. Verse 37, And all those things you will overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved you. And verse 38, I am convinced, Paul says, that neither life, death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's all true if you just embrace Him by faith. Some people think faith is way too simple. Well, it's so easy. In fact, I heard a rabbi on the radio the other day mocking the Christian salvation um, that way. He was saying, it's so easy well, yeah, because you're totally helpless. It wasn't easy for him being nailed to a cross. It wasn't easy for him being flogged and beaten and humiliated by Roman soldiers. That wasn't easy, and that was the, he's the one who paid the price. It's not a simple salvation from what God had to do to achieve it. We're helpless. So it has to be easy for us in that sense. Because there's nothing we can do to gain God's favor. Christ did it all. So when we embrace Christ, God's love makes it easy for us and provides rest and will grant us a new birth and a whole new way of seeing the universe. You will not wake up and see the world with the same idea today if you go from being a non-Christian today to a Christian tomorrow. If you accept Christ in your life, the world will be a different place for you. And forever will be. Guaranteed. So come to the Savior if you don't know for sure that you know Him. Embrace Him and He will give you new life. It's a promise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for being such a gracious God in salvation. Such wonderful promises. And they're true. Because Jesus lived in this world, lived in history, died in history, rose in history, was seen by hundreds and hundreds of people in history ascended up into heaven and even today inspires and enlightens and indwells millions and millions of people who love him. There's always room for more. Father, we thank you for being such a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, as the psalmist says. We thank you for who you are in Jesus' name. Amen.